Orphaned at the age of 15, Eleanor of Aquitaine would first rule as the Queen of France before divorcing her husband and tying herself to the man who would become the next King of England. She fought in the Second Crusade, participated in a coup that sought to overthrow her husband, gave birth to ten children, two of whom became kings of England and Ireland. Her daughters did quite well also, as her eldest ruled beside one of the most powerful German princes of the era. Another ruled side by side with the leader of the powerful Spanish fiefdom of Castile, and her youngest child reigned as the Queen of Sicily. European monarchs are encouraged to immediately have both a heir and a spare, but Eleanor took the role of childbirth as just the first of her many responsibilities. Well into her 60s, she was thrust into the role of regent when her third son Richard the Lionheart left England in order to wage war against Salah al-Din during the Third Crusade. During this time, she improved governance on the island nation, set sail on a dangerous voyage to deliver a bride to her wayward son, and ensured Richard's freedom by squeezing every shilling out of the pocket of her people in order to pay his ransom. Eleanor has been called the Rebel Queen of the Middle Ages, the Scarlet O'Hara of the 12th century. She remains the forerunner of feminism, a woman who had an incredible impact on world history, and yet she is eclipsed by all of the men that history has attached to her, most of whom departed the earth long before her. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the first of two regarding Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Queen of France. Her path to feminist icon began early in her life. Born in 1122 in Aquitaine, a province in the southwest corner of modern-day France, she was exposed to ideas that were considered unique for the time. For instance, women and men mingled freely within the borders of Aquitaine, a territory whose historical importance goes back to the Roman days, with Julius Caesar taking time to wax poetic in his descriptions of Aquitaine in what was then referred to as Gaul. Caesar references the territories extending from the Pyrenees Mountains to the Garonne River. Augustus later added it to the Roman Empire and worked in order to enlarge the territory. Charlemagne eventually liberated it and raised it up as a Frankish kingdom, ruled by his son Louis I, who continued the tradition by bestowing rule to his son Pippin I, and then subsequently to his grandson. Eleanor was thus born into the largest, most diverse, and richest province in medieval France. She arrived into this world as the firstborn child of the ruling family. Because she was born in Aquitaine, she was allowed to inherit property, and thus was taught to read, write, and think. Elites, typically men, viciously controlled the ability to read and write within society. Bob Marley had it right when he told the world, that whilst others might free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. Access to literature, or even better, the ability to control literature, is a necessity in pushing back ideas that are ingrained within the status quo, particularly a status quo that is unfair to the majority. Elites were granted the right to an education. These early men were able to write down history that informed the people of their place in society. Perhaps not surprisingly, men are still the predominant gender when it comes to who is holding the pen that records history. Slate reveals to us that 70% of the New York Times bestsellers in history are still written by men. The numbers during Eleanor's age were likely far more exaggerated. Yet it was Eleanor who was fluent in three languages. 
We know that the world's major religious books were written by men. In most religions, the gendered interpretations of the faith placed women in a clearly inferior position, with the holy texts arguing that they were somehow lesser than men, guilty of unforgivable sins, or prone to weaknesses due to their gender. Women that rose up against these stereotypes typically lost their lives brutally as the patriarchy struck back by referring to them as witches, whores, or perhaps the worst of insults that the patriarchy could hurl at them for a number of centuries. Feminists. Women had allies who could write on their behalf, such as the ancient Greek philosopher Plato who wrote that women possess natural capacities equal to men for governing and defending the Greek state. But they weren't able to effectively argue on their behalf until the 1400s. During this early Enlightenment period of the Middle Ages, Christine de Pizan was able to successfully object to the role that women had been forced to accept throughout the Middle Ages. Pizan, the poet, wrote that not all men, and especially the wisest, share the opinion that it is bad for women to be educated. But it is very true that many foolish men have claimed this, because it displeased them that women knew more than they did. She also poked the patriarchal bear by stating that just as women's bodies are softer than men's, so their understanding is sharper. But Pizan only spoke up in France in the 1400s because she had the ability to read, write, and think. Professor Pavla Miller reveals the dual nature of literacy, stating for the record that literacy and education more generally have been among the most publicly contested domains in gender struggles. Feminists and their opponents typically believe that the right sort of education can overturn centuries of women's oppression or else teach girls how to obey men. Eleanor, at the beginning of the 13th century, had been taught to be both questioning and headstrong. She may have had an easier time than some with this type of personality, as it was well agreed upon that she was extremely beautiful. Her grandfather was described as quite the colorful character, even choosing to display the image of a naked woman on his shield in order to distract his opponent. The fact that the image was blatantly identifiable as his mistress was why Eleanor's grandmother retired to an isolated life in a nunnery. Raised in this liberal environment, Eleanor had been granted a great gift, the opportunity to free her own mind. She was nurtured in Aquitaine's troubadourian culture, which praised warriors in song and verse. The setting resulted in young Eleanor imagining that the roller coaster of love was full of wonder and exhilarating escapades, as she lay distracted from her other lessons in statecraft, as well as how to play the newly imported Eastern game of chess. She might have been able to experience love the way that the poets sang about it, except for the fact that her father, the Duke of Aquitaine, unexpectedly passed away from drinking contaminated water while on a pilgrimage when his heir and daughter was just 15 years old. In front of trusted witnesses, he orally bequeathed everything to Eleanor, something that was only allowable within the borders of Aquitaine. Her mother had passed seven years earlier, meaning that Eleanor stood to inherit the entirety of Aquitaine. But just because her homeland was progressive doesn't mean that the rest of the country was. Unwilling to let an opportunity go, the King of France, Louis VII, took over the legal role of parent for the teen, tasked in his mind with what each father entrenched in the nexus of patriarchy and hereditary power felt was the most important task, marrying women in order to enhance the power of men.
after what must have been minutes of thinking, Louis came to the conclusion that the best groom for his newest charge would be, shock him bound, his own son and heir. 500 men were sent as her personal escort to fulfill the fate that the king had decreed. After years of exerting their independence, Aquitaine would finally return to the control of the French crown. Eleanor found married life in the city of love to be quite boring, telling chroniclers that she had expected to marry a king, but had instead found a monk. Historian Alison Weir tells us that, after the marriage service was concluded, the young couple sat enthroned on the dais in the chancel of the cathedral, both wearing the golden ducal coronets of Aquitaine. Then they proceeded through cheering crowds along a street strewn with leaves and past houses hung with tapestries, banners, and greenery. Finally, they arrived at Ambri Palace for the wedding banquet. They left Bordeaux immediately afterwards for Portois, spending their first night together as man and wife at the castle of Talibourg, owned by Eleanor's loyal and chivalrous vassal, Geoffrey de Provence. Louis was a virgin when he married, and it was likely that Eleanor, carefully nurtured and guarded as she had been, was too. The hesitancy in Weir's words is palpable. Louis VII had been raised in the stifling environment of the Parisian court, which was described as frosty, even on the hottest of summer days. Louis had initially been set to oversee the Church of France, but was bumped up in the line of succession after his elder brother died from an accident which involved a feral pig running beneath the legs of his stallion while the dauphin was parading through Paris. The early career path left a mark on the young man, however, causing Louis to be described as one of the most pious men to have ever sat on the throne. Eleanor, an avid horseman and outdoor enthusiast, believed in the romantic notion of love and desired the freedom to experience it. Little did she expect to be so soon locked away within the city, but she still did her royal duty, producing two daughters, Marie and Alice. The royal couple's first child, however, wasn't produced until their eighth anniversary. Turns out that Eleanor's husband believed in the Catholic Church's teachings that sex was only for the purpose of procreation. As you likely have guessed, they had separate bedrooms. The stifling, wasted life of her grandmother in a nunnery wasn't the world that Eleanor wanted to live in. A prisoner until she produced a son wasn't a fate that she was willing to accept. Marley's words about a woman such as Eleanor wouldn't provide any solace to the dolphin, but I am reminded of them here, as the musician tells us that if she's amazing, she won't be easy. If she's easy, she won't be amazing. If she's worth it, you won't give up. If you give up, you're not worthy. Truth is, everybody's going to hurt you. You just gotta find the ones worth suffering for. Things seemed to turn in her favor a month into her marriage, when her father-in-law, King Louis VI, passed away from dysentery. From her first day as Louis's wife, Eleanor firmly believed that she could manipulate her husband. She imagined that it would be far better meeting the future king of the Franks in the bedchamber than on the battlefield. Marion Mead, one of her biographers, writes about their wedding feast, telling us that there were whispers from the tables as many guests staring at Louis murmured that he almost looked like a monk. If these remarks reached Eleanor's ears, she would have been the first to admit that her betrothed seemed as mild as a lamb. At times during the course of the festivities, his grave, vulnerable eyes rested on her with a strange expression of wonderment and puppy-like adoration, and Eleanor, for her part, was an astute observer of human beings to comprehend 
that here was a man susceptible to feminine manipulation. She had dreamt that her husband would be like her legendary grandfather, who was a noted poet, or perhaps as her father, who was a victorious warrior. Instead, historian Douglas Boyd imagines the disappointment in the young bride's eyes as she discovered that her husband was a flabby, blonde-haired young man who was unable to look a girl in the face for sheer embarrassment. Although the marriage produced children, it wasn't full of romantic nights. Chroniclers skip around from calling Eleanor out for liking the pleasures of sex, but it is clear that she enjoyed the act quite a bit. They describe her as amorous, as well as a woman of untamed passions. Although she didn't voice her complaints about her husband publicly, you can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Eleanor was lonely and desired to be desired. Louis was afraid to leave her alone at times, fearful that she might find someone willing to play with her in ways that her husband seemed unable to. The two were opposites, who rather than attracting each other, had been forced to gather. Aquitaine was the one who really married Louis. Eleanor was just thrown in to make it happen. Summoning the attitude of everything is going to be alright, she did her best in an attempt to make things work bringing her own unique brand of Southern charm and troubadourian culture to Paris. She introduced the stiff French court to poets and musicians who had begun to use bow-stringed instruments from the East. She also introduced makeup to the court, with her detractors stating under their breath that the young queen put her beauty on in the morning and took it off at night. Although both were mainstream ideas in today's society, these were revolutionary concepts introduced into a Christian court which required women to disguise their curves and hide their hair. She commissioned plays in Latin and encouraged accessible entertainment throughout the capital. Ostracized from her husband, Eleanor had opened her eyes and looked within. Asked if she were satisfied with the life she was living, she would have replied that she knew where we're going, we know where we're from. But change is upsetting, particularly when it's rubbed in your face on a constant basis, such as the newfound sight of women riding and hawking, as well as playing board games in the gardens in between attending men's medical lectures. Her efforts were merely tolerated rather than embraced so she pushed harder, this time trying to rule as a queen should, with her husband, rather than just beneath him. Again, she was rebuffed, eventually being told that her only place was in the bedroom. She appealed, going so high up as her mother-in-law, whom Eleanor begged to intervene after telling the former queen that she was significantly better qualified than all of Louis's ministers to rule Aquitaine, and perhaps all of France. Her ambition and willingness to continue to push earned her the scorn of Louis' ministers and the French nobility. After all, uppity behavior in wives had been known to be contagious, even in the Middle Ages. The young queen continually tested her ability to coax policy change, but rarely was able to sway her husband's way of thinking. A key moment in her ability to influence Louis came about in 1141, when the position of the Archbishop of Bourges became vacant. The king vetoed one candidate in order to install one of his chancellors, a man who was viewed negatively by the church as a political appointment. The Pope sided with the local bishops and consecrated the man whom Louis had vetoed. The king promptly bolted the gates of the church to prevent the man from accepting his post. 
War broke out over the incident, with the Pope claiming that some of Louis' lands were forfeit. In what appears to be shameless bias against women, the Pope held Eleanor responsible for her husband's behavior. It turns out that Eleanor's father had also been impetus when it came to accepting the church's authority to make unpopular appointments. The Pope publicly chided Eleanor, claiming that Louis was just a foolish schoolboy who was in need of a lesson in proper manners. Whether this teaching ought to be from his wife or because he had been waylaid by her is unclear. At his wife's urging, Louis refused to back down and was excommunicated by the church for his defiance. Despite the fear that banishment from the church holds in our minds, it was far from being a final, irreversible end during this era. Excommunication was commonly thrown about to bring aristocrats back beneath the Pope's thumb. When it comes to the monopolization of religion, there's nothing that dividers can't do, can't separate us from our Father. This wasn't the only time the courtiers remarked about the uppity queen's negative influence upon her husband. Next, she was implicated as the main cause of a three-year war over a dispute over whom Eleanor's younger sister ought to marry. Alith, the sister, had fallen in love with Portois' Count Vermandos. Unfortunately, the Count, who was twice her age, was already married to the niece of Louis's most powerful vassal, Count Thibault. Thibault objected, and Vermandos was ordered to slink home to his lawfully wedded wife. But Eleanor would not relent, and soon the king was forced to use the royal army to invade Vermandos's land in order to get him to obey. Although he was victorious, the conflict required him to set a fire to the town of Vitry, burning it to the ground. More than 1,000 of his citizens perished in the flames. Worse for the pious king was the mental anguish that came with the fact that many of those victims took refuge within the town's church. It was guilt from his actions as well as the fact that he had been excommunicated by the Pope for a second time that convinced him to sign up and join the Second Crusade. Fearful of his wife's ambition and amorous nature, Louis insisted that Eleanor accompany him to the Holy Land. Taking her on the crusade was said to have been more about getting her away from Paris than fear of missing out on her company. They announced their plans on Christmas Day 1145. Eleanor, of course, didn't intend to just be an ornament taken out for the king's enjoyment. Hoping to send the message that her husband wouldn't have to worry about a thing, because every little thing's going to be all right, she raised 300 loyal men-at-arms from Aquitaine to join them on the endeavor. They reached the Holy Land in June of 1147, initially connecting with her uncle, the influential Count Raymond. From the moment that she arrived in her uncle's court, rumors began that she had an adulterous, incestuous relationship with the muscular knight that she referred to publicly as uncle. But there is no clear evidence for either side of the accusation. The inclusion of such thoughts is less to criticize Eleanor, who was in a loveless marriage fighting for survival, but to showcase that the French court didn't even trust her alone in the care of her uncle, a man whose pleasure she was said to enjoy because he reminded her of her father. Obsessed with a good tale of war and love, troubadours turned the whispered rumors into stories and sang them far and wide with exaggerated glee. The Second Crusade is one of the lesser-known crusades. Rather than conquering Jerusalem, this crusade was merely a reinforcement of the twelve crusader kingdoms that had been established in the wake of the initial 1099 sacking of Jerusalem 
an event that culminated in a massive slaughter of the city's Jewish and Muslim citizens. An event that would set the stage for the next 500 years of conflict between the universalizing faiths of Christianity and Islam. More pressing on the minds of King Louis was the fact that it represented a massive drain on the French budget, as Louis had brought in 15,000 soldiers, second only to the German contingent. Few sought to join the Crusades, as 70,000 Europeans had failed to return from the first one, and those who had arrived home did so in a desperate state of financial ruin from a journey that had been expected to enrich them. Rather than bringing the church and state together, the Second Crusade furthered the schism between France and the Vatican. The king at one point even accused the Holy Roman Emperor of betraying him to the Turkish Sultan. The fact of the matter was that Louis wasn't cut out to be a military leader. The French forces were said to be one of the most disorganized groups in military history. And at one point, Louis abandoned more than 3,000 of his men who were subsequently forcibly converted to Islam. The fact that Louis represented the worst of the Crusader forces is biting criticism, considering that among these medieval Middle Eastern incursions are listed both a peasant crusade as well as a children's crusade. It didn't help that among his army's ranks were the deplorables of French society, robbers, rapists, and murderers who had procured pardons conditional on the taking of the cross. His most interesting moment of the entire crusade was captured by the chronicler Odo of Dule, who tells the tale of the king after his forces were decimated by a Turkish ambush. Odo claims, during the fighting, King Louis lost his small and famous royal guard, but he remained in good heart and nimbly and courageously scaled the side of the mountain by gripping the tree roots. The enemy climbed after him, hoping to capture him, and the enemy in the distance continued to fire arrows at him. But God willed that his cuirass should protect him from the arrows. And to prevent him from being captured, he defended the crag with his bloody sword, cutting off many heads and hands. What we know of King Louis makes this account pure fan fiction from the man whom Eleanor wishes she was married to. Louis rarely saw fighting firsthand, but he was continually a witness to disaster. Historian Lawrence Marvin refers to his role as a failure of command, control, and communication. The most significant action for the French forces was precipitated by an argument between Eleanor and her husband. The queen, 24 years old at this point in time, was desperate to relieve her uncle who was in the midst of being on the wrong side of a siege. Louis, being hammered for his failures, sought to make amends by finishing strongly. Under his direction, the French switched their marching orders mid-course and headed directly towards Jerusalem. He never got there, abandoning the Holy Land after getting drawn into the failed siege of Damascus. Faced with yet another failure, Louis turned to a tried and true tactic that men have been using since the Genesis. He blamed his wife. The French are great at this particular game. The Washington Post even reveals that they have their own term for it, Chersez la femme, which translates to look for the woman. Alyssa Benedek, a forensic psychiatrist, reveals that it is common for individuals to blame women when something awful happens. And the practice goes back a long way, allowing for a quick relief to a society that is anxious about its future. The key feature of the practice is the perception that the woman first has enormous power, something that French courtiers regularly claimed about Eleanor. Eleanor was blamed with interfering too much in strategy sessions, of distracting her husband, 
even of slowing the army down too much with her excessive baggage trains full of clothes. She was even blamed for inspiring other women to join the crusade, thus distracting and slowing down those men as well. Louis and many of his men took a vow of chastity while on crusade. Thus, the women that the queen brought were a constant, unwanted distraction from God. Eleanor wasn't even allowed to visit her husband's tent during the march to war. If she had thought that the crusade would be her chance to finally connect with her husband, she was waiting in vain. Boyd points out that the disagreements between the monarchs were immediate, revealing that the differences of personality between Louis and Eleanor were typified in their preparations, while he visited monasteries and hospitals begging the prayers of his humblest and therefore most Christ-like subjects for the success of the crusade. She traveled the length and breadth of Aquitaine and Portois, bullying and cajoling her richest and most powerful vassals to raise more money and men. The differences continued after they had arrived in Constantinople. After three months on the road, Eleanor's Amazons embraced the running water and flushing toilets, something that was unknown back at home. The men, however, continued to not wash, under the belief that uncleanliness was a sign of holiness. Boyd points out that the Byzantines abhorred the stink of the unwashed French and the smell of their breath due to their habit of chewing raw garlic as a prophylactic. The hosts held on to Louis' contingent far longer than necessary, for they were carefully playing both sides, fearful that if either force grew too strong, it would be the end of their empire. The Byzantines succeeded in ensuring that the German Holy Roman Emperor never managed to unite with Louis' forces. Memories of this Greek betrayal would ensure that Richard, Eleanor's son, would avoid the typical land route during the Third Crusade. Once Louis did begin to move into action, he acted like a pious monk rather than a tactician, visiting biblical shrines that were far out of the way, costing them two months and ensuring that they would be caught by winter on the wrong side of the mountains. Because of this, the baggage train became too stretched out in ensuing downpours, and the Turks seized their opportunity to steal nearly everything that the Franks had brought with them. Boyd tells us that by late January of 1148, the Sari band straggled out of the mountains north of the Greek seaport of Salthia, the modern Atia. The ladies had lost most of their clothes and furniture. Bishops and knights had lost their mounts, and were walking barefoot, gaunt, and famished, with their clothes in tatters. Things grew even more serious once the downtrodden group reached Eleanor's uncle in Antioch. Once within the ancient walls of Antioch, she again found men who were willing to act naturally around women, as well as those that waxed poetically about their adventures. Here, Eleanor's followers were given the best lodging while the French men-at-arms were relegated to secondary citizens. Raymond badly misjudged the queen's ability to control her husband. He was desperate to utilize the armies of Louis in order to expand his territory into Edessa while Louis sought to head to Jerusalem. Boyd points to this as the fountain of the malicious rumors about Raymond and his niece, stating that Louis could not but be aware of her pleasure in her uncle's company while to Raymond's mind, a king who had to be protected from his own beautiful strong-willed wife by a monk and a eunuch was a figure of mockery, unworthy of respect. Louis's advisors, unable to understand exactly what was going on between the queen and her uncle, perhaps read more than necessary into the jokes and jibes in the city. The flirting, natural enough for a healthy young woman, after all, the long months without any sex, thanks to Louis's vow of celibacy, was to them the outward sign of a clandestine, carnal relationship. When Louis announced that Jerusalem was their objective, Eleanor threatened to take her Aquitaine retainers with her to aid her uncle. 
To her surprise, the entire court turned on her, believing her personally responsible for sabotaging the entire mission. In reality, the Franks had a legit chance to alleviate Edessa, but far too soldiers to stand any chance at reaching the walls of Jerusalem, even if his hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. Louis was making an irrational choice. Faced with a stubborn wife who seemed immune to his attempts at reason, Louis decided to kidnap her during the evening affairs. She spent the rest of the march to Jerusalem under guard. To say that the criminal act wasn't a shock is an understatement. To the men of Louis's court, women became property as soon as they signed the marriage contract. As I said earlier, Louis and Eleanor's Middle Eastern adventure ended at Damascus, when they mistakenly camped upon land whose irrigation systems had already been destroyed. Spotting a weakly defended spot on the other side, which happened to still have their water systems intact, the French moved as quickly as they could muster, directly into a trap. After ambushes annihilated their cavalry, the French managed to barely get out before becoming encircled by Salah al-Din's reinforcements, which had been carefully hidden. Boyd writes about the event with the ominous words of, so ended the Second Crusade, after four inglorious days of ineffectual strife against neutrals who had done no wrong. Those who had not succeeded in finding a niche in the Latin kingdom set off for France, the needy being provided with money for the journey home out of the king's pocket. Rather than bringing the couple closer together during an exotic, dangerous adventure, the crusade would prove to be the death of their union. Due to the holy nature of the endeavor, Louis had taken a vow of chastity for the duration of the war. This likely induced a number of eye rolls among the French nobility, as the monarchs had just given birth to their first daughter the previous year. They now knew that the couple could produce a child, but the birds and the bees wouldn't be allowed to visit again until the Holy Land was secured. Had she been at liberty, Boyd tells us, it is inconceivable that she would have chosen to stay on in the Holy Land, disgraced and sidelined. The richest woman in Christendom, after a decade and a half learning palace politics on the Ile de France and among the squabbling barons during the crusade and its preparations, would have been perfectly able to charter for herself a ship had she been at liberty. So one has to conclude that she was under some form of constraint or confinement as Louis's prisoner. Eventually, the finger-pointing was so bad that the couple agreed to peacefully end their union. But divorce in Catholicism, particularly for royalty, wasn't an easy task. On the way home, during which the king and queen took separate ships, stopped and took an excursion to Italy in order to consult Pope Eugene III, who personally counseled the couple. I happened to be Catholic, and one of the oddest experiences of my life was the ten hours of mandatory pre-marriage discussion with our parish's priest. Taking marriage advice on subjects regarding the bedroom from a man who had taken a vow of chastity is legitimately an odd moment. At the same time, I did truly enjoy talking about our relationship and hopes and aspirations for our marriage during those sessions. I don't have much experience with it, but from the little that I do have, I can truly advise those out there that talking to a professional does help. The Pope told King Louis two things. First, to let go of his doubts about his wife, to trust her. Second, he needed to sleep with her, like every night. He even creepily offered his own bedchamber for the deed. The desired coupling occurred and resulted in their second daughter, Alice. But it didn't resolve any of the other issues regarding the couple. In fact, their fighting increased exponentially. 
The distance between them returned, with Louis becoming even more pious after the crusade. It didn't help that his advisors regularly poured poison in the ears of the king, and the queen flirted with individuals in front of her husband. Truth hurts. Unlike music, once it hits you, you will feel pain. Among the usual flirts in Paris, Eleanor took a keen interest in Joffrey, the Duke of Anjou, a man known about court as Joffrey the Handsome, as well as his son, Henry II, a man who was 11 years younger than the queen. Two years later, the monarchs returned to renew their counseling, hoping to once again rekindle a spark. This time, however, the Pope agreed to annul their marriage, making it as though their nuptials had never happened in the first place. The loophole that allowed such an action was the fact that according to the church, Louis and Eleanor were too closely related in order to be man and wife. Of course, this conclusion came about two years after the same man had counseled them to sleep together more often. The Relations Act loophole is called consanguity. The church allowed individuals to marry only if they were within more than seven degrees of separation. Eleanor was Louis' third cousin, once removed, two levels less than permitted. Of course, the church ignored the practice often in the subsequent decades, particularly related to the Austrian Habsburgs. But in this instance, it was used to make everyone satisfied. The fact that Louis chose this route for annulling the marriage is unique, as it wasn't the only option available to him. He could have formally accused Eleanor of cheating on him. Such an action, however, if proven, would have carried the death penalty for her. Although she is widely regarded as a flirt, there is absolutely no evidence that she ever crossed the line from flirtation to fling. Still, there were benefits to making the claim. Going down that accusatory route would have allowed France to retain control of Aquitaine. Eleanor had never relinquished the legal titles to her homeland. It was a part of the French kingdom only because of her marriage to Louis. An annulment would turn back the hands of time and once again result in an independent Aquitaine free of Paris's influence. To his credit, Louis never went down this route. Still, no one wants to look like the one that got dumped. Stories were put into circulation about the shock that the annulment caused, with chronicler Jean Bouchot claiming that Eleanor collapsed when she heard of the annulment, remaining in faint for two hours before rising to defend her marriage one last futile time. In reality, she was more than happy to move on with her life. The only qualm for her was the fact that Louis had inserted into the agreement a claim on their two daughters, dictating that she would never be allowed to see them again. Her acceptance of the annulment shows what she was willing to give up in order to escape a marriage that she had never chosen for herself. Her daughter's presence was just the price that had to be paid to be reunited with her homeland of Aquitaine. It was 1152, and the world had suddenly become her oyster. Except it hadn't. Her original problem remained a problem. Louis had married her only to obtain rights to Aquitaine. She still retained those rights. Now she had been publicly cast off and sent on her way with a reputation that was in tatters. Historian Desmond Seward tells us bluntly that she was immediately at risk of being seized at any moment and married at the point of the sword. She was once more what she had been when her father died, the quarry of every fortune hunter and robber baron. And it wasn't just conjecture to make the story better, as she evaded at least two planned abductions on her travels home. First from Theobald of Blois, whose lands she would have to cross, and secondly, from Geoffrey Planchent, the younger brother of Henry. In both instances, her knight in shining armor turned out to be Henry II, 
the son of Joffrey the Handsome. Although there is no evidence of contact between the two, it is widely believed that the two conducted an on-again, off-again affair for years. Historian Rebecca Star Brown, though, is unsure, telling us that some maintain they were in love, some that Henry abducted her to claim her inheritance, and others that they were mutually ambitious and plotted it out together. Brown happens to side with the mutual ambition theory, as Henry was already consulting his Norman barons 16 days after the annulment had occurred. His people approved the match, and six weeks later, Eleanor was once again off the market. This time they sought the church's approval ahead of time, considering the fact that the two were just as closely related as she had been to her previous husband. Divorce is tough on everyone. It can also be very emotionally confusing. For instance, Louis had no interest in Eleanor, and he was assuredly happier without her. For him, it truly was no woman, no cry. He remarried twice more, producing three more daughters, as well as his heir, Philip Augustus, one of the greatest rulers in French history. Just because he didn't want Eleanor, however, doesn't mean that he was okay with another male choosing to scoop her up. Henry, who at this time was the Duke of Normandy, and not yet the King of England, was feudally linked to the French throne. Despite this, he never asked Louis' permission to court his now ex-wife. Not that that permission ought to be required in such a situation. Likewise, Eleanor did not alert her ex to her plans. She was 30 years old and had just avoided a kidnapping by marrying her lands of Aquitaine to the 19-year-old bull-necked, stocky, and freckled Lord of Normandy. Her young new husband had endless amounts of energy, ferocious impatience, and an ungovernable temper. If she was looking to make her husband jealous, she had chosen the perfect vessel. After Henry ascended to the English throne, the Angevin Empire, as it came to be known, was blessed with a strip of French land stretching from the English Channel to the Pyrenees. It resulted in Henry controlling more than ten times the amount of French land than the King of France himself. This also represented the most territory held in the hands of a single Frenchman since the days of Charlemagne. But his crowning across the Channel was still two years away. He had to survive his wife's ex first. Louis immediately declared war on both Henry and Eleanor, now openly hinting that his ex-wife had in fact been unfaithful to him. This ex post facto argument was a naked ploy for once again seizing Aquitaine. It couldn't have helped to soothe Louis' rage that her decision to marry someone even closer related to her also flew in the face of the Pope's agreement to annul their marriage for the same reason. Louis declared war separately on Henry and Eleanor, showing that he was still choosing to blame the woman for his problems. At this point in history, however, it is well known that Louis was an ineffective commander. What history was about to find out was how spectacular Henry was at war. Louis brought the British king to his side with promises related to Normandy. He showed that it was personal by setting out at the head of the forces sent to attack his wife's homeland of Aquitaine. Henry moved with the speed of a 19-year-old young man who was full of confidence. He let Louis' forces pass through, avoiding an open conflict. He then struck at the British forces and stabilized Normandy before then immediately turning south to strike against the lands of his brother, who had been promised his siblings' lands if he had cooperated with King Louis. Finally, he turned his attention to Aquitaine. But by this point, Louis had fallen ill and withdrew from the campaign. A peace agreement was signed in favor of Henry, and the Duke of Normandy had been given justification to fulfill the dreams of every Norman who had come after William the Conqueror. He crossed the English Channel in 1153 with a small army of mercenaries paid on borrowed money, beginning his play for the English crown.
That same year, Eleanor gave birth to Henry's first legitimate child, a boy named William IX. But the child didn't survive past the age of three, most likely passing away after a seizure. The tragedy invited public concerns about Eleanor's fitness for producing children. After all, her previous 15-year marriage had only resulted in the conception and birth of two daughters. Those concerns were soon set aside with the birth of young Henry a year and a half later. The couple would go on to have six more children, all of whom survived to adulthood. Permanently pregnant, she was somewhat annoyed with the lack of her own representation within Henry's growing court. But she seemed content, recreating the court that she had grown accustomed to as a child, exploring the progressive dream that was Aquitaine. She also spent a small fortune on luxury goods, including her favorite spices that she had encountered while on the crusade, particularly saffron. Her life had already had all the ups and downs necessary for one of the great troubadour tales of her time. She even charged Andres Capolunis, the chaplain of her household, to write a book on teaching others how to love. The work about love places a woman in charge of determining her relationships, forcing the man to prove that he was worthy of her love, rather than the other way around. She brought in exiled artists, troubadours, and historians whom the King of France, in anger towards his ex, had discarded. The future looked bright for the now former Queen of France. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you catch any references to Bob Marley songs? If you did, did you catch all ten? If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.